Welcome, welcome, welcome to Chromatic Distortion with Corey Caesar. Good evening. It's a Sunday in October. 22nd, 23rd, something like that. Very close to my 38th birthday. And I'm starting this tape without script or without any real organization of what I want to say. But I do feel I need to explain. Starting this off, no competition, sadistic, I'm twisted, simplistic, and vicious. Malicious intentions that leave a new witness. I'm ripping the faces of all of my victims, building a chainsaw. Blades off, running at full speed, and trust me, they know. Fear is a must to attain law. Part of the neck of the rest of the brain off. It's beautiful that in the country, especially when any others confront me. I'm feeling for blood, I'm hungry. Heard of this track and you're trying to hunt me? Who in the house, the family's waiting. Turning it to the table, we've been craving. Dinner, we're plating. You are the course, we are the killers, and you are the Welcome back to another Serial Killer edition on Chromatic Distortion. This is your host, Corey Caesar. What's going on, guys? Uh, this edition, Serial Killer style, is um, going to be Charles Ng and Leonard Lake. Now, this is a very fascinating case, so uh, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, let me just, let's just start it right off, and we're going to take you all the way back to June 2nd, 1985. I was like three years old just turning three years old and we're going to go to the south city lumber yard which is just outside of san francisco and at this lumber yard police were called because an asian man was seen stealing a table vice now this asian man fled when one of the store flir- uh, clerks confronted him when police arrived, they pulled up to this 1980 Honda Prelude, red in color. The police were approached at this time by a store clerk and another larger man with a beard. So this clerk, he pointed out to this police officer, this vice. And this vice was just laying in an open trunk of that Honda. Which is kind of weird because who leaves their Honda trunk open when they go into a, a like an Ace Hardware type store? You know what I mean? Anyway, uh, the cop, uh, the clerk told the cop he had saw this Asian man, you know, dump this vice in here. So, um, while looking at the vice, this cop noticed that there was like this bag and it looked like it had a gun in it. So he yanked out that gun and it ended up being a 22 revolver with a silencer. So now this cop's like, all right, what's going on here? The silencer is illegal. That silencer is illegal in California in 1985. You could have a gun in 1985, but you can't have that silencer. That silencer was illegal. So this is where that story starts getting um, really strange. Uh, at this point, that unknown bearded man that was following that store clerk... He approached with a sales receipt. So apparently homie paid for this vice after his friend dipped. And he was like, he told the store clerk, he's like, I'm sorry, you know, I didn't I don't know why my friend he thought I was paying for it. Let me just pay for it. Anything else he may have taken. So dude, 
you know, pay for the shit. But the, the clerk was like, nah, bro. Uh, I already dispatched the, the, the police and they come in. And, and what's crazy about it is this just uh, according to this clerk, that this Chinese dude uh, or this Asian guy and uh, this bearded man have been coming in for the last couple of months to this lumberyard uh, hardware store. So at this point, the police, they didn't know what the fuck to do. They got the silencer, but, you know, the, the laws are a little laxed in 1985. It's not so, like, gung-ho like it is today. Um, so what they did was the cop was just like, all right, let me just um, let me go ahead and just run this plate. So he ran the plate of the Honda and at the same time uh, asked the bearded man uh, who this car belonged to. The name given, Lonnie Bond. So that tag, which was actually uh, 838WFQ, and yes, that's the real plate number, guys, because you know where I go deep here in the facts with chromatic distortion. We don't fuck around. Um, that plate came also came back to a Lonnie Bond. But the issue was, now, that plate was registered to a Buick, not a Honda Prelude. So at this point, the officer asked the bearded man, who he thinks is Lonnie Bond, potentially, for that ID. And the bearded man provides that ID, provides a driver's license. But the problem is, this driver's license is in the name of Robin S. Stapley, a 26-year-old San Diego resident, which made that police officer even more suspicious because the dude looked considerably older than the guy on the ID. So now we have the the plate and the car ownership to Alani Bond, even though it's to a different car, but the ID this dude's carrying is Robin S. Stapley. The cop asked um, where Lonnie Bond was, and he said he was up north fishing. So he asked now about that gun. He's like, well, well, what about this gun? Which was obviously, like I said earlier, illegal because of that silencer. And the man said it was Lonnie's, that dude fishing. And it was just basically in the car because, you know, it's Lonnie's car, and he was just using it to shoot some beer cans. So this officer ran the serial number on that pistola. And it came back, unfortunately for this bearded man, to Robin Stapley, the same ID that he gave as who he is. So the cop was like, all right, well, since I don't really know what's going on, I'm just going to arrest you for this illegal weapon simply because the name on the weapon is you, which is the ID you gave me. So guess what, homie? You're going to jail. So, uh, basically, um, the description of the Asian man who fled the scene was broadcasted as an Asian male, slight build, about 25, last seen wearing a parka. Dude was rocking a parka. So they impounded that car and drove the bearded man, presumably Robin S. Stapley, to the South City Police Station for interrogation. Now remember this is the 80s. So they hadn't even searched dude's person yet. Um, they got him into the interrogation room. And then had him empty his, uh, his pockets. So amongst some of these possessions in his pockets. Was a travel receipt. And that receipt had a name on it. Of 
Charles Gunner. So now we're at three different names. We have a Lonnie Bond, we have a Robin S. Stapley, and we have a Charles Gunner. So they had also ran the VIN number to the Honda Prelude. And it came back to a fourth person, a man named Paul Cosner, who had been reported missing like nine months earlier to the San Francisco Police Department. So now, uh, given this information to uh, Robin S. Stapley or whoever this bearded man is, he got kind of like, uh, he went pale, got a little flustered, and asked um, the officer for a pen and paper and a glass of water. Now, these officers, they didn't know what was going on. They asked him, are you going to write a confession? Thinking he's going to write a confession. He's like, nah. I just want to write a, I'm going to write a letter to my wife. So these cops, they didn't know what to do. I mean, I would give him a paper too. You'd think maybe he's going to incriminate himself, right? So they gave him the paper and they uncuffed him um, so he could write. And he did. He wrote that letter and he wrote a letter to his wife. When he was done writing that letter, he put that letter in his shirt pocket. The officer asked him, would you like us to deliver that for you? And he just said no. And then said, my friend's name, who ran off and was stealing that uh, vice, is Charlie Cheetah Ng. And he said, my real name is Leonard Lake. And that he was also a fugitive wanted by the FBI. So without saying another word, this bearded man... Leonard Lake took something out from the lapel of his shirt and placed it in his mouth. Within seconds, his eyes rolled back in his head and he went into convulsions. The police later discovered that, guess what? This dude taped two cyanide capsules to the underside of his shirt lapel. Homie was rolling with cyanide. You ain't taking me. You're not taking me alive. I'm going, I'm getting caught. I'm going down. And he was a snitch because he read it out. Charles uh, Cheetah Ng. But I, I, don't, I don't really, I don't really blame his snitchness right here uh, on this one, actually, because if you think about it, he's in this mess simply because homie was stealing a vice. But then on the other hand, the bearded man could have just walked away. Right? They didn't know Leonard Lake. All they knew was this car. If he was smart, he would have just dipped. I would have just dipped. Just been like, as soon as that clerk walked up to uh, to that police officer, I'd be like, all right, out the back door, see ya. I'm going to go about my murderous ways or whatever I'm up to. Because I was up to some shit if you carrying around cyanide capsules ready to do yourself in. So now the investigation, if you want to call it that, because now they don't really, they don't really know, the police have absolutely zero idea what's going on here. All they know is they have a car and multiple names attached to this dude who just put something in his mouth and went to convulsions. Now he's in a coma. So he's in a coma at this point. They rush from the hospital. He's basically in a coma for like four or five days. 
So the investigation, like I said, shifts to the only piece of evidence they have, and that's that Honda Prelude. So at this point, they discovered blood stains on the front passenger seat and a bullet hole uh, above it near the sun visor and two spent shell, uh, shell casings under the seat. So Paul Cosner, 39, who was the original owner of this Honda and a trader of used cars, had disappeared on November 2nd, 1984. Like uh, a year before this, I think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he told his girlfriend, he was supposed to be meeting his girlfriend for uh, for dinner, and he called her up and said he might be a little bit late because he was meeting a quote-unquote weird-looking guy to show him the car he was selling that he was advertising in the paper. And Paul Cosner was never seen again. And the case went cold after no leads. And I think, I believe, I believe the, um, the detective, she's, she's a, a woman, this woman detective who was on this, she, she was like the head of the missing persons, I think. Um, she said in a documentary that like, they were getting like 400 cases a month in the San Francisco area of missing people. That's crazy. 400 a month, but it's probably just people walking off, going to a different state. There wasn't really like, remember that's the eighties. There was no, there was no social media. You weren't keeping with touch with people with cell phones. There was no, you were just, you were not in touch. If you didn't have a landline or a pager, no one got a hold of you. Like that was it. So um, also among the, uh, the property in this Honda Prelude was several bank and credit cards and other documents in the name of Robin uh, S. Stapley, which is Stanford Scott, I believe. And those were found in the glove compartment, so that's the ID. So a check made with San Diego police revealed, ironically, that uh, Stapley had actually been the founding member of the San Diego chapter of the Guardian Angels, which is a national organization that... uh, was basically formed to help protect like private citizens from, believe it or not, criminal attacks and generally just aid police. And here this dude just shows up missing. And he had been missing since that previous April. Another bank card was found and it was in the name of a Randy Jacobson. And they also found a Pacific Gas and Electric bill in the name of... Um, Clarilyn Balaz, all right? And the ad- address shown on the bill was a post office box in um, Wesleyville, California, which is what, like a region like 150 miles east of San Francisco at the foot of the Sierra Nevada mountains. So after a check with this uh, gas company, police discovered that Balaz was actually Lake's ex-wife. And was living in San Bruno, which was just a few miles from that lumber yard where Lake was arrested um, for his boy stealing that vice. So now on Monday, June 3rd, 1985, this is the next day of that robbery. Two detectives from San Francisco Missing Persons went to interview her when asked about the... um, uh, Wisleyville address, Bal- uh, Balaza told the police 
that are related to like a cabin her father owned near San Andreas. Shout out to Grand Theft Auto. When the detectives asked for directions to this cabin, she explained that it was in a remote location and could only be found by someone familiar with the area. So she's throwing that little like uh, that little delay techniques like, let me just delay you for a second. I don't like this chick. And you're, I'm, I'm going to tell you more about her in a little bit. So they're like, all right, cool. How about let's go tomorrow? Then you guys can show me. We'll meet close. And I'll call ahead anyway to um, the police there and just let them know we're going to be in the area doing this little, you know, search. Not not a warrant search, but uh, a voluntary search. They, they allow me on this property and just let you know we're going to be in your backyard. So the following day, they met his ex-wife. And weirdly enough, Lake's mother, Gloria uh, Eberling, also showed up. And they met at like a grocery store located on Highway 88, which was just a short distance from the cabin. And apparently, uh, Homegirl and his mom, they were a little late for this meeting. They were supposed to meet at a specific time, and they didn't show up right away. So police were like, uh, why were you late? And she explained that she actually went up to the cabin the night before, prior to meeting them. And explained that she had been looking for videos that Lake had taken of her in the nude and only wanted to save herself from some embarrassment. Like right then and there, I'm like, I'm thinking, all right, you uh, you committed a crime. And that's what they told her. They're like, man, if you, you know, if you, you know, we can get you for obstructing justice if you took anything out of there. She said she didn't. She didn't find nothing. There's other reports that said she just wanted to like tidy up. Um, that's what she originally told. There's there's multiple conflicting um, stories on what she actually told the police, but we'll get into what actually happened a little bit later on in this episode. Stay tuned, bruh. So anyway, uh, they drive to this cabin. It really wasn't that hard to find. It was only like a couple. It was only like a couple of streets, but the cabin itself was secluded, and it sat on like two and a half acres, and it was really only accessible by like a 200-foot driveway that had a gate and a padlock. While approaching the cabin itself, they noticed um, like this bunker, like this concrete bunker as they're driving up the driveway. So they arrive at this cabin, which wasn't really nothing, it wasn't nothing real fancy. It was like two bedrooms, a kitchen, and a bathroom. Super simple. The first thing they noticed on entering this room was a spray of reddish colored stains on the living room ceiling. Got that blood, bro. Now one wall was a mural of a forest scene. In the middle of the scene was a single small caliber bullet hole. So instantly right there, I see a bullet hole and I see some bloody stains. Murder scene. It's automatic murder to me. But they kept looking, and I don't think they, like, they knew something was up, but I don't think they really, they didn't panic yet, right? So they entered the kitchen, and they found another similar bullet hole in the floor. The master bedroom held, like, a four-post bed that had some electrical cords tied to each of its posts, and it was bolted through the floor at each corner of the bed with, like, some eye bolts and shit. And then above it was like this 
this uh this floodlight, this big 250 watt floodlight that was fastened to the wall like a little studio, like a little studio light shining on this bed. What the fuck you need that much light for? We fucking with the lights off. So I mean the police. I mean to me, if I'm a cop and I'm looking at this, you got two options. You either got some murderers or you got some freaks. Or maybe you got a combination of both. So on one side of this bed was just like a standard dresser. But on this dresser, there was like an assortment of women's lingerie, like underwear and shit. Many of which were soiled with some dark red stains. There's that blood again. We turn to the front room. There was a television and two items of audio duplicating equipment. So one of these officers, remember they're the San Francisco missing um, persons who are here looking at this, uh, looking at this cabin because of the missing people is the only, is the only thing they had to go by. Remembers a case of some missing equipment, like audio video equipment. And upon further inspection, they realized that this was equipment belonged to Harvey Dubs, a San Francisco resident who, with his wife and baby son, had disappeared on July 24th, 1984. Now, this family had last been seen by a neighbor who saw them talking to two men who had come to the house to inquire about the equipment, that audio-video equipment that Harvey Dubs had advertised for sale in the local paper. He was like into videography and audio, and I guess he rented equipment out. So he would always like put ads in the paper. You come over, you rent his equipment if you wanted to do like your own video. And he kept detailed notes. Apparently, he like wrote everything down, serial numbers, descriptions, kept all the manuals. That's how they were able to trace this video equipment through the serial numbers and his records. But once again, this was another case that had just gone cold. It's just another missing person, missing family at that. No evidence, no bodies, nobody really seen anything. It wasn't out of the ordinary that someone would come by to get equipment from the house. So, like I said, just another case that went cold. So at this point, they're like, all right, we know we got some missing equipment from a family that's been missing. We got the blood. We got the lingerie. We got the, the bed with the, that's bolted down. We got the, uh, the cords on the post that looks like they're tying people. We got floodlights. We got bullet holes. If I didn't say that already. So they went to the San Andreas District Attorney instantly and spoke with Assistant DA John Martin to request a search warrant for that entire property. So instantly, they obtained a warrant from Judge Douglas uh, Muhinney. Uh, it's a great name, Muhinney. Uh, and they returned to the property and conducted, crazy enough, a little brief interview with Balaz and Eberling. So they just left them at the they just left them at the cabin. They're like, "We gotta go. We're gonna get this warrant." But I don't know, man. I don't think in today. I don't think you would ever. I don't think today you would ever leave people at the house at this point because it's definitely a murder scene. I mean, come on. If you don't think that's a murder scene, then I don't. You're not a detective. 
So I think they would have locked that down and just said crime scene. Y'all can't be in here right this second, even though we don't got a warrant. I think at that point they already were invited in. I think they, you know, I think they had the, I think they had the right. So anyway, they they go and they start questioning them about their previous uh, previous visit to the cabin. Now Everling, his mother, Leonard Lake's mother, refused to answer any questions, and the ex-wife became evasive stating only that her parents had bought the cabin from, quote-unquote, the fat guy. And we'll hear more about him, the fat dude, in a minute. So at this point, the detectives are, all right, let's go outside. They're being combative. They're not really, excuse me, they're not really, uh, they're not really giving us anything. So they go outside, and they notice an incinerator. You know, one of those big old things you burn shit in, just burns everything. So aware that the previous occupants, obviously, of the cabin were in some way involved in the disappearance of several people, they decided um, that, you know, basically a detailed examination of the entire area, including the incinerator, and that a mysterious concrete bunker that they noticed on the way in was a priority. But now, unfortunately, their search warrant didn't cover that locked bunker. It only covered the house and I think the, like the little uh, immediate ground area around it. So... Um, they asked, went back inside and asked um, Balaz, Carolyn Balaz, if she would give them consent to search it. Now, she, had resp- she responded to this request, suggesting that they talk to Lake's partner, Charles Ng. So now we finally hear Charles Ng again coming back into the story. So, obviously, the next question to ask is, um, has she seen Charles Ng recently? Now we're only day. This is day two, still, guys. Of um, this is the, basically the day after, still. That that dude killed him. Uh, not killed himself, but took the uh, took the cyanide and 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 he ran off with um, that vice. You know that 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 vice that got him caught up. A fucking vice, guys. So she told detectives that Ng had called her the previous day for a ride to his apartment, you know, the day of the, of the theft. There, Ng had packed a suitcase with clothes, a twenty-two handgun, ammunition, cash, and two IDs, a California driver's license, and a social security card, both in the name of Mike Komoto. That was his alias, Mike Komoto. Now, afterwards... She drove him to the United Airlines terminal at San Francisco Airport, but claimed she had no idea where he was going. Now, this to me, guys, this girl, she has involvement written all over her. Um, but I don't know. They didn't really see it right away, I guess. So she was asked for more information on Lake then and because they didn't really know who Lake was so fresh still and she told detectives that she and Lake had met at a renaissance fair in Marion County and they married after dating just for a short time now his best man was that Charles Gunner who I just mentioned the fat guy a longtime friend like I said who was 5'8 and weighed nearly four hundred pounds dude five eight four hundred 
pounds. And that's why she christened him the fat man. Shortly after the wedding, which, crazy, was paid for by this gunner character, they moved to uh, Philo in Mendocino, where Lake found work managing a motel. Could you imagine if you stayed uh, stayed in that in that motel, guys? We'd have a real live Norman Bates on our hands, I think. Now, within a year, Charles Ng arrived and moved in with Lake and his new wife. In uh, 1982, about five months after Ng moved in, she told them an FBI SWAT team raided the property and arrested Ng and Lake and charged them in relation to theft and weapons from a military base in Hawaii. Now, uh, Lake was later released on $30,000 bail, which, you guessed it, was paid for by the fat man gunner, while Ng, who was still considered a serving member of the Marine Corps, was court-martialed and sentenced to two years in Leavenworth Prison. Leavenworth ain't no joke. Now, not wishing to go to jail while he was on bond, Lake made plans to run off and hide in the mountains to this cabin and asked his wife to go with him. But homegirl refused. So the relationship basically broke down and Lake moved into that cabin by himself. But they kept a close relationship throughout this entire period afterwards, which, again, homegirl in on some fucking freaky shit. So let's touch on that real quick. Ng was in the Marines still, and he was stationed in Hawaii and fled to California after he was caught stealing and selling military weapons. And basically, some guards, this is how the story is told, some guards got too laxed, and their story is that he just simply walked away. And then he boarded a flight to Cali. So that's why that FBI SWAT team raided where he was staying. He... He walked away, just walked away from his military base, uh, flew to California through a mutual friend who Ng and Lake both knew. They were introduced to each other. That's why he moved in there. The FBI caught up with uh, Charles Ng realistically and raided the house. And in the possession, they also had more military weapons that they were uh, that they were selling. That's why Lake was also arrested with Ng. Okay, so. Um, that's basically why the FBI raided the place. And like I said, this still blows, this still kind of blows my mind because we're only a couple of days in this investigation. I understand that. But I understand how these detectives are, are don't already have like this information that Lake was a fugitive and Charles Ng was like in this military prison and they stole weapons. And I think that would, I mean, to me, you'd think they would already know this, but apparently they didn't. So they're just going by what homegirl's telling them right now. Um, so they start pressing her now at this point for more information on Ink since he's the he seems to be a culprit now. And she becomes angry and doesn't give them permission to search the bunker. And she leaves instantly with Lake's mother and contacts a lawyer. So after relaying the information regarding Ink's movements that, you know, he had gotten on a flight and that his alias was Mike Komoto 
to their office, they requested an additional search warrant for that bunker so they don't need her permission. So because of all the stuff that they had been uncovering, their request was obviously given like top priority in a joint, and they actually uh, made a joint uh, task force, um, which was set up to search the entire site. And that was uh, San Francisco's police chief, Cornelius Murphy, who authorized a 12-man unit and Sheriff Ballard, who's the lady who's been conducting the initial search and the detect the missing persons detective from San Francisco we've been talking about, um, of Calaveras County. She assembled her own team of five men and placed Lieutenant Bob Bunning in charge of that. Deputy Chief of Inspector Joseph Lorden, great name, man, Lorden, um, was placed in charge of the San Francisco detachment. So now here on Tuesday, June 4th, 1985, two days after this all began, the search begins. Now the first task was just to set up a base camp while a locksmith was summoned to unlock that bunker because it was locked down pretty hard. So they did like a, a preliminary examination of the area around that bunker. Um... And it revealed a cleared area 10 feet in diameter that showed traces of lye and a long trench that seemed to contain article of clothing. So lye is the shit you put on bodies to make it disappear. Like it's like it's like lime. It, it eats basically just eats you away. It just deteriorate. It just basically dissolves everything. Bone, everything. It dissolves everything. Uh, it's nasty shit. So they feared a gravesite. So fearing this gravesite. Um, that Sheriff Ballard, she ordered the searchers to focus their attention on those areas while um, she sent another officer to find out who owned the neighboring property because there was one other property that shared this driveway with them. So while these investigators were coordinating um, these search parties of these trenches, that officer returned from the house next door with some more disturbing information. The owner of that property, Bo Carter, who had been contacted by telephone, informed these officers that his house was a rental. Now, some weeks before, his tenant, that Lonnie Bond, if you remember that guy's name, the plates and the car, um, the registration owned to Lonnie Bond, his lover and common-law wife, Brenda O'Connor, and their infant son, Lonnie Jr., had fallen behind on their rent. So this owner of this property, this rental property, sent a real estate agent over to collect that rent that they owed him. I'm just going to send over his little, his little henchman, uh, real estate agent. They must have been fucking badasses back then, dude. Gonna give me the money, man. Give me the money. So when that agent arrived at the house, a man calling himself Charles Gunner, which remembers that best man, the dude who was paid, who paid that thirty grand bail for Lake, and also uh, uh, paid for his wedding, and according to the wife, was the original owner of the cabin. For she, uh, he sold it to her parents. Came from the direction of their cabin, and told him that the tenants had left. 10 days previous. At this time, the agent informed the owner 
that another man by the name of, you guessed it, Robin S. Stapley, which was the ID late gay police and the registered owner of that silence, Pistola, had been living with the Bonds prior to their disappearance. So he had came from a different, I can't remember the story exactly. They lived there, he knew them, he moved from somewhere and was staying with them for a little while. So he was there, the agent knew about it, the owner didn't know about it at that time. So the agent also told the owner that like there was an eroded bank near the boundary between the two properties that had been like recently dug up, like someone dug up your yard basically. So disturbed by the news, obviously, because if you own this property, you're going to take a look. Like, what these fucking guys do, man? They left in a hurry. That's what you're thinking. They just dipped out. They had an extra guest, tore up my yard. My house is probably fucked. So he went out, he went to, out to the site to inspect it. When he arrived, a man calling himself, guess what? Once again, Charlie Gunner came out and approached him and watched him. As he inspected that house. Now to me that's fucking nuts. And. He's probably lucky. Because if I had to guess. You know. If homie had found something. That this. Quote unquote Charles Gunner. Didn't like. I think that Bo Carter. Would be uh, buried in that. One of those graves bro. That's just my personal opinion. You lucky you didn't find nothing, dude. Count your uh, count your cards, bro. So check this out. That owner, this is how this is how this is why I make this uh, assertion. The owner said he didn't even worry about Gunner watching him until he saw that TV news about a man who took the cyanide following his arrest. And the news item showed the dude's picture, and guess what? He said the man on that picture was Leonard Lake, but that was the guy who came out saying I was Charlie uh, Charlie Gunner. So Gunner uh, dead, bro. Gunner gone. Char uh, uh, Leonard Lake already assumed homie's identity. So the following day, the bunker was opened. Now the main room of this bunker was 20 foot by 12 foot. And it had like a little workshop area, um, which had a range of like hand tools and power saws hanging from like a plywood wall next to like a workbench. It's a regular workbench. So, you know, they started looking at these tools and they noticed that there was a lot of um, encrusted, a lot of them were encrusted with like dry brown uh, reddish substance, possibly blood. Now attached to one of the, that that workbench was a broken vice, so they probably go in there to replace the stupid broken vice. That's where all this started from, fucking shoplifting a vice. So as they inspected this room further, the detectives checked the dimensions of it and discovered that it was actually smaller than what it seemed like from the outside, and figured that there. Maybe a hidden room that they're not seeing, right? Like, damn, a hidden room, dude, in a bunker? So they soon found that the plywood tool rack was, in fact, a door leading to a smaller room. Now, inside this smaller room was just a simple double bed, a little side table, some books, 
and a reading lamp. And on one of these walls was this wooden plaque with the words Operation Miranda carved into it. Now, police would later learn that that name was derived from this book called The Collector by John Fowles, which was also found in the bookshelf. And it was actually um, Leonard Lake's favorite book as a teenager. And this book tells the story of a butterfly collector who kidnaps a beautiful woman and keeps her locked in his cellar where the woman eventually dies. So, I mean, they, they find that fucking inscribing, the Miranda Project. So, this room also contained military equipment, including some uniforms, some boots, a vast array of weapons, including assault rifles, shotguns, machine guns. Fuck machine guns, you need M&M. Fuck up a machine gun real quick. Uh, on the floor, police found a work shirt and a baseball cap with the words... Dennis Moving Service uh, embroidered on him. So here's another weird piece of who the fuck's Dennis Moving Service. Now on a bookshelf on the far wall, between some books on explosives and chemicals, they found a small window that appeared to be made of multiple panes of glass, which made them wonder if it was just like a soundproof glass so you couldn't hear nothing. Now, on the other side was another shelf, and it had a military starlight scope, which is basically designed for snipers, and it's capable of viewing objects in extremely low-light conditions. On another wall were 21 candid photographs of young girls in various stages of undress, so just 21 pictures of random girls, and they were most of them were taken outdoors. But two of these pictures have been taken in front of a wallpaper with a cartoon character motif on it. So police eventually would identify that wallpaper as being the same that of the South City Juvenile Hall where Clarilyn Belaz worked as a teacher's assistant. So, I'm telling you guys, this girl was involved. I think, fortunately for these 21 women, later all 21 women were identified and found to be alive and well. So, none of them had been abducted, abduct, abducted yet to, uh, to be in this, this cellar. But, I think that was their plan. And I think she was involved. Because, why did they have the pictures? She had to take them. So after checking these measurements again, they def- they found that there was like another discrepancy. They're like, it's still too small. It's still too small compared to the outside. There's, there's possibly a third room behind the small window. So they informed the lead, that Sheriff uh, Ballard woman, but she refused the searchers' permission to continue until the forensic technicians had collected evidence from those first two rooms, which makes sense. She wanted to get all the evidence first. She's like, "Let's, we got a lot here right now. Let's collect all this. Let's get fingerprints. Let's do all that shit. And the first find by those technicians was a single adult fingerprint taken from the bookshelf window. 
Later, they found another print on and around the same window, which were retained until the fingerprint records of Lake and Ings and missing person files could be attained for some comparisons. And later on, they were positively identified to belong to Charles Ng and Leonard Lake. Now, as the technicians continued their analysis, searchers outside who were doing their thing uh, uncovered two bones, the first bones found beside the driveway. But they weren't real sure if they could ascertain if they were human or not. So they sent them out to Dr. Boyd Stevens, who um, is the San Francisco chief medical examiner at the time, for further analysis. The second day on the site, the second day of the massive search, the lab crew responsible for the search of the cabin found additional evidence in the form of a 22 caliber bullet that was removed from the wall of the main bedroom. Under the springs of the bed of the same room, they found a diary, which later proved to be written by Leonard Lake, and in this diary described in chilling detail how he and Ng had selected, raped, and murdered numerous of victims. It also described how Lake, who was an ardent survivalist who feared nuclear war, had planned to build a series of bunkers across the country complete with supplies, weapons, and you guessed it, female sex slaves. This diary further spelled out his intention to use his female captives to repopulate the world. Dude was going to drop his seed and all these girls because he thought everyone was going to die and he would literally uh, repopulate the entire world. Now, I think that's why when I go back to those 21 girls, I think that's why they're lucky. He was going to build these bunkers all across the country where he would house sex slaves. And I think tw those these 21 women were going to be those slaves. That's just my opinion. That's never been corroborated. That's just what I get from it. And I think his ex-wife was involved. Fuck that hoe. Uh, so, but now by 5 p.m. on the second day, the same day they found that diary, um, all that initial forensic analysis of that bunker had been completed. So, the um, detective was like, all right, let's let's look for that third room now, right? Because we've only found them two, but we're still, still something not quite adding up. We're still, we're still missing some area. So, one of those detectives found this secret door behind a bookcase that led into a room that was connected to that window. Now this this room was tiny. And it was only three foot three inches wide. That's fucking small guys. By seven and a half feet long. With only a six foot ceiling. So basically just enough for, for like this narrow bed. Which was in there. A little narrow bed. A little chemical toilet. Some air freshener. Because it probably stank like booty hole. And uh, some uh, a little water. Like a little water container. But also what they found was a little bit more sinister was a list of rules a list of rules for these captives and these rules read I must always be ready to service my master I must be clean brushed and made up with my cell neat I must never speak unless spoken to unless in bed I must never look at my master in the eye but must keep my eyes downcast I must never show my disrespect, either verbally or silent. I must never cross my arms or legs in front of my body or clench my fists. 
and unless eating, must always keep my lips sealed. I must be obedient completely and in all things. I must obey and without question or comment. I must always be quiet when locked in my cell. I must remember and obey any additional rules told to me. I must understand that my disobedience, any pain, trouble, or annoyance caused by me to my master will be grounds for punishment. Could you imagine these demented fucks making you follow these rules? And you're like, what are you going to do? Like, I don't want to die. Kind of got to just do it. Fucking sick, man. So they also noticed that a few holes had been drilled in the wall to provide just a little bit of ventilation, but they had been baffled to exclude light. So that's like a deprivation. That's like deprivation, guys, like a deprivation tank. That's fucking that could make you go insane just in itself, just being completely void of light, sound. They said it was like soundproof in there. It was deadening, they said. So after uh, closely examining both rooms at the same time, they now dis- um, discovered that that little window they found was actually a two-way was actually two-way glass. Like you know, you can only see one in, you can only see in, you can't see out. And then they later discovered that there was a button, and when you push that button, it allowed the people in the bigger room, like that first small, like that first smaller bedroom, to hear any sounds. From that smaller room. So they could sit there and listen. And what's even worse. Is when the detectives turn off all those lights. To make it black. They use that starlight scope. That scope they found. That military scope that's you know made for looking at uh, shit in low light conditions. They put it through that window. Through that viewing window. And they were able to see the other detectives in that smaller room. So they discovered what looked like basically a hostage cell. When the newest information was relayed, uh, they knew they had something like really big here at this point. Like, okay, we need to make this a full-scale murder investigation. We need to get everybody involved. And they did. And now the search became involved the FBI. They got the California for uh, Forestry Department involved. And they got the California Department of Justice involved to get more people out there, more task force on this, more resources. So the next morning, which is basically still day three of the search, is going quick now. The investigators received an uninspected visitor in the form of Gloria Eberling. Now remember, Gloria Eberling is Lake's mother. She just popped up by herself. No ex-wife this time. She told Detective Ballard that she came because she was concerned, guys. And she was concerned about her other son. She had another son. Donald Lake, who had disappeared two years earlier. So she's like, man, I, I, I know you guys are finding some shit here. I'm, I'm kind of disturbed. And I, I kind of just came because I'm wondering if my one son murdered my other son now because he was missing. So at this point, they're like, all right, we got her talking a little bit. They asked his mom had the ex-wife removed anything from the cabin when they came up here that day before. And they, and she told police that homegirl took 12 videotapes, guys, from the main bedroom. 
Now, she later gave police these 12 videos she had taken from the cabin, which, as she had indicated, were of her and Lake having sex. Now, I'm going to tell you later why I think that's bullshit. That I, I think she gave them 12 different tapes. I think she gave them 12 ta- tapes of her banging, of them banging, but she may have already had those. I think these videotapes she took were something sinister, and you're going to hear real soon why I believe that. So, um, for detectives, obviously, this case is now a fucking nightmare, right? Because they have evidence of multiple kidnappings, multiple rapes, multiple murders, and two main suspects. The issue is, one was virtually dead, because he was still in a coma, but brain dead. And the other was in hiding and possibly in another country. So all they could basically do was collect evidence and wait. So think about how crazy this story is. Think about how different this case is. Most of the time you have murders and you start connecting murders to each other. Like, okay, that's the same MO, same type of person, same type of crime. And then there's some kind of panic with serial killers. Like, Then all of a sudden they become known. It's like, okay, we're chasing this. And you can get... Um, you know, then maybe they're going to leave evidence here and then maybe they leave a little bit of evidence there and you start getting profiles and people start becoming aware. Nobody knew nothing was going on here. They're working backwards. They're working backwards from no, uh, from no crime besides a shoplifting to a person, to a name, to a car, to a bill, to a cabin, to bones, to blood. To craziness. So you're trying to piece all this shit together and you got nothing really to work from. You don't even know you don't even know who's buried in this in these bodies yet. You don't know dick. So that's a weird case. That's a hard case to even figure out what the fuck's going on, I think. So the FBI uh meanwhile, the FBI had determined that Charles Ng, when Homegirl took him to United Airlines, if you remember, he took a fight flight from San Francisco to our little area, Chi-Town, Chicago, right? But they were unable to ascertain where he had gone from there. So after a check of his background, um, they ran a background on him, obviously. You know, that's the FBI. They found that he had come from Hong Kong, and he had sisters in Toronto and Calgary, and uncle in Yorkshire, England, and former Marine friends in Hawaii. So they were aware that with sufficient funds and several days lead at this point, he could realistically be in any of four locations. So to assist in the search, dude, they went deep, guys. They contacted Interpol, and they were like, they called up, they called up uh, Sherlock Holmes and Watson up at Scotland Yard and distributed Ng's description worldwide. This became a worldwide manhood. Now, they believe since he came to Chicago, that he most likely went up to see one of his relatives, um, his sisters, in Canada. So they focused their main search for him in Canada, but basically weren't, you know, weren't coming up with anything. So now a day later, um, we're back searching at this property, that Dr. Stevens, who had collected those first two bones to, to see if these were actually human bones or not, he arrived on site and informed those detectives that those, bur- 
those bones were in fact uh, human, definitely human. So shortly after he arrived, now they started finding all kinds of shit because now they're like, okay, we can dig harder. They had some cadaver dogs come in. They were having trouble finding stuff, so they actually brought in the big uh, the big machinery and started just digging up earth and then sifting through it. So they started finding bones. And on the ends uh, of, both, of both of these bones, they kept seeing saw, like saw marks or similar cutting tools, like basically just chopping up. And they were unearthing, unearthing at this point numerous items from various locations in all kinds of trenches that ran from the bunker to the entry road everywhere. And then the police found a plastic bag containing an actual letter addressed to Charles Ng and a receipt in the name of Harvey Dubs. You know, that video equipment dude. Next, they unearthed a shirt with the name Scott embroidered on it. Literally hundreds of items. Just random shit. They're like, I don't even know who fuck Scott is. Like, I don't know. I guess some dude Scott was here at some point, right? So it wasn't until like the fifth day that the first like full bodies were found. And they were just basically scale, uh, skeletal remains of two people. Um, and they seemed to be complete. But the problem was, again... These bones had been sawed in the sections and also badly burned. They were put into the incinerator. Now on the same day, so this is like the fifth day of the search, um, they actually pulled the plug now on Leonard Lake and he died within seconds. So now Leonard Lake officially gone, out of the story, never talked, took cyanide pills. See ya. Now later that day, the case was broke wide open when they uncovered a sealed five-gallon bucket. And in this bucket, it contained a checkbook. Uh, One had the name Robin Stapley on it, the ID guy, some jewelry, multiple credit cards, multiple driver's license, wallets, and two videotapes without labels, and a third videotape marked M-Ladies, Kathy slash Brenda. Now, M-Ladies is the Miranda Ladies. Remember the Miranda Project, that butterfly book. His M-Ladies. The ladies he's going to put in this this cell and hold them until they die. Now, the first two videos were viewed. And the first one basically just showed Lake and his ex-wife at a Thanksgiving dinner. But on the second one, Lake had been filmed discussing his greatest fantasy which was kidnapping a woman and enslaving her. It was basically like a podcast, and we're going to listen to this video here in a second. About six minutes is what they released, about all I could find. So that third video now was watched, and it was the most disturbing because it showed a young woman identified only as Kathy chained to a chair and later forced to perform a strip tease and some sexual uh, some sexual things, some sexual favors, while being taunted by two men, Lake and Charles Ng. In another part of the video, Ng could be seen clearly like fornicating on a bed with Kathy while Lake took some still photographs. Now this young this one young woman was later identified as 18-year-old Kathy Allen, who 
is crazy because she was lured there to the site by Lake, who told her her boyfriend had been shot. So basically they called her up and they're like, hey, your boyfriend's been shot. He really want, he needs to see you. You need to come see him. And I guess she came, but it's really weird. Like you get in a car with two dudes. They drove there and got her and then took her to the cabin. But it makes sense only because the police later found out that her boyfriend that they killed. So they basically, uh, basically he was a known drug dealer named Michael Sean Carroll and he was Ng's cellmate in Leavenworth. So when Ng went to jail, he met this dude who talked about this Kathy Allen chick who Ng relayed to Leonard Lake. And Leonard Lake was like, ooh, I, want, I, I like this girl. I want her to be one of my M ladies. So they went and found Charles Ng's friend from uh, uh, jail, murder dude, and then called up his girlfriend and was like, he's been shot because he's a drug dealer. So that's probably, she's like, okay, that makes sense. He may have got shot. And uh, he wants to see you. So that she's like, okay. And that, that was her life-changing mistake. Obviously, that sucks. That's horrible. So, like I said, they basically killed him because Lake wanted her as one of his animal ladies. So... This t- also on the same tape, because remember there's two ladies named on it, and it included footage of another young woman named Brenda, which showed her begging for information regarding her infant baby. In answer, Lake tells her, your baby is sound asleep, like a rock. Eventually, when the constant barrage of taunts and threats breaks her resolve, Brenda agrees to basically just cooperate. She's like, I don't really have much choice, do I? I'll, do, I'll just do what you want. So later in the tapes, you know, she could be seen doing some things, mostly taking a shower with both these dudes. Now, the second victim, this lady, this Brenda that we just talked about, she was actually 19-year-old Brenda O'Connor, remember, Lake's next-door neighbor. And police believe that her common-law husband, Lonnie Bond, the car owner, and their baby, little Lonnie Jr., were murdered by Lake and Inc. prior to this tape being made. Now, he could be, t- you know, he basically told her when, he was at, when she was asking about her baby, Lake was like, you know, your baby sound asleep like a rock. So, literally, like a rock. Which is crazy because you, you'll hear in this video, originally he was telling her that he was going to give her baby away to someone in, someone down south just a little bit. She's like, you can't do that. That's my baby. And you're going to hear that. It's it's disturbing as fuck. But uh, he basically was just, t- the story goes that he just didn't like her. He didn't, he didn't like her at all. And he was telling her that. I, don't, I just don't like you. And apparently he didn't like her because she left their gate open when she when they would leave the compound. Remember, they shared that gate. They shared that 200-foot driveway with the gate in lock. And Leonard, Leonard Lake wanted that shit locked at all times because he's a fucking murderer and a pervert. And that's what happens. So we're almost done here with this search now. So as this search progressed, um, they uncovered more partial skulls and another plastic bucket containing personal items and another complete, even though burned, body. And within minutes, so now they're just uncovering shit like crazy. 
they find four more bodies, including that of a child. Two were female, and the other was a black male. Now, a short time later, another plastic container and a long 12-inch diameter metal tube was unearthed. Now, inside this container, police found 1863 silver dollars guys so that was like their that was like their prepper money you know like they got i got silver eight one thousand eight hundred sixty three of these fucking dollars guy and more wallets and credit cards just more wallets more credit cards now the tube contained a colt ar-15 semi-automatic rifle they found uh, a, another mound of freshly dug earth some distance from the cabin where two more bodies were uncovered and both had been killed by a single small caliber bullet to the head. And then even eventually, after after this fifth day, they were done, dude, they, they, this is how serious they were about this search, guys. They were done with this cabin, dude. They, they, they completely demolished that cabin. I mean, not that cabin, that bunker, I apologize. They demolished that bunker to search for more bodies. Because all these trenches were like coming from this, this, uh, this bunker. So now, as the search wore down, they were able to identify the bodies of seven men, three women, two baby boys, and a staggering, staggering, forty-five pounds of little ass small bone fragments, guys along with numerous amounts of property belonging to all the deceased. So in all, the police found evidence that realistically suggested that more than likely 25 people who had previously been ported missing had been murdered in and around this compound. But the fact was that most of these bodies had been cut up, burnt, and scattered around this site, this two and a half acres. So it made identification almost impossible. So eventually, they were able to identify literally only 12 people in this site. And they uh, entered uh, an arrest warrant for a one Charles Cheetah Ng for these 12 murders. And a worldwide manhunt ensued. Now the victims would be identified as, I want to give their names, Kathy Allen, her boyfriend Michael Carroll, Robin Scott Stapley, Randy Johnson, Charles the Fat Man Gunner, Lake's best man, Donald Lake, Leonard's brother, Paul Cosner, the owner of the Honda, Brenda O'Connor, Lonnie Bond Sr., Lonnie Bond Jr., Lake's next door neighbors, and Harvey Dubs, Deborah Dubs, and Sean Dubs, the Dubs family, who had been inducted and killed by Ingen Lake, uh, for that equipment, that audio and, and, and uh, video equipment. So now, they got 12 bodies, 12 murders for sure. They going after Charles Cheetah Ing. And I'm going to leave you guys out. This is part one. We're going to do this in two parts. So this first this first part was um just the the search and now we're on to the manhunt and on to the crazy criminal uh proceedings that follow. So hope you enjoyed this part one. I'm gonna leave you with these this six minutes of tape. 
And I hope you come back for part two. All right, guys. Remember always, like always, uh, be good to each other. Catch you on the flip side. You have just witnessed the lyrical stylistics of chromatic distortion. Good evening. It's a Sunday in October. 22nd, 23rd, something like that. Very close to my 38th birthday. And I'm starting this tape without script or without any real organization of what I want to say. But I do feel I need to explain. What I want is an off-the-shelf sex partner. I want to be able to use a woman whenever and however I want. And when I'm tired or bored or not interested, I simply want to put her away, lock her up in a little room, get her out of my sight, out of my life. Slave, there's no way around it. Primarily a sexual slave, but nonetheless a physical slave as well. I believe that I can, if I can construct a holding cell, a place where I can put such a woman, a facility that is so stark and so empty, so cold, so quiet, so totally removed from the world, that I can quickly condition a young woman to cooperate with me fully. If you go along with this, cooperate with this, we'll be as nice as we can to you within the limits of keeping you prisoner. If you don't go along with this, we'll probably take you into the bed, tie you down, rape you, shoot you, and bury you. Sorry, lady. Time's up. Make your choice. Here. While you're here, we'll keep you busy. You'll wash for us, you'll clean for us, cook for us, you'll cook for us. That's your choice in a nutshell. It's not much of a choice. Unless you've got a death wish. No, I don't If it ever arises again, if there's any circumstance whatsoever that leads me to think that you're even attempting to make noise. It's immaterial as to whether I hear you or anyone else hears you. You'll be whipped very severely. And tell me you understand. I understand. I'm having a little war within myself between what I want to do and what we might call is the decent thing to do. And for the moment, the decent thing to do is win. So, rest. Okay, I just want you to know that I'm giving this stuff to you under protest. <laughs> Not that you'd care, mind you. Probably not. But why are you doing this? Because we hate you. Yeah. Your baby is going to take, be taken away. Excuse me. Uh, I'm going to be taken away. There's a family down in Fresno that doesn't have a baby. You're not taking my baby. Yeah. Then his baby's dead, right? I mean, they got one now. That's my baby. Brenda, you have a child. Her baby is sound asleep, like a rock. Uh, you're... We don't like you. Would I like me to put it in writing? It's done. Just stick it, whatever we tell you. Your way. Don't cut me, girl.
yours now. You're totally ours. It's so hard. It's like sick. Suffer. I'm going to pass out of here tonight night or something. Well, you can pass out, but we won't wake you up. Brenda, I have a lot of animosity against you, and I would just as soon start you out with a nice firm whipping right now to make you believe how serious we are. Ready? You'll be here, you'll be there, you'll be everywhere, you're in all intersections. 
I'm gonna deal with depression Cause it's cancer could kill any second But I'm gonna mess with you for the session Fight for your life cause the live is a blessing You feel the aggression I can tell by your facial expression That you're feeling really bad for the things in your past But the last is my oppression B to the E to the N and Y Why? Cause I'm Pennywise Hi, don't try hiding or running by I can show up here there anytime And I'll be whatever holds your mind I'm a meme of Stabby Max But I'm Lee on my ultimate form <laughs> I'm not just a stylish clown And I tend to wanna better act like bangs and down I'm kids cause the squeals are the last around I don't necessarily want to kill you I do temporarily want to fruit you Scream at a pitch that's hardly a tune And decimals going through the roof These are the things that I really like Your taste now, time to take a bite Run.